It is by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we get to draw near. Is that not good news for everybody in here? Here's the alternative. If it was not by the grace of God, then it is by our own merit. It is by your own work. And how many know that there is not enough that you can do to earn the love of God? It is freely given to you, found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we now get to draw near and gather together as a body of people uh, based on the fact and the reality that the cross actually did work. It accomplished exactly what it said it would over 2,000 years ago. Let me also jump in and say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. Can we just thank God once more? Man, mothers certainly hold a special place in society. Mothers hold a special place in the church as well. And, you know, Mother's Day is a, is a complex, complex time, very complex holiday. If you consider the fact, I mean, some of us grew up with um, with great moms that we're excited to celebrate. And then there's others that grew up in a dysfunctional home and they don't even want to think about mom today. There's another group of people that lost mom too soon. And there are some that wish that they could be moms, and yet the Lord just hasn't opened up that door yet. There are some that are single moms without dad's help, and then there are some that, uh, that are moms but actually have a great support system. And wherever you fall on the spectrum today, God, that's the one thing I love about the Bible, love about God, is that he invades every sector of every season, of every emotion, of every part of who we are. God is able to invade it. So we want to invite him in today to our Mother's Day. Thank God for our men that are serving today. Can we thank God for the fellas? It, it is, we typically have, uh, our volunteers are, are mostly female. Our church is mostly female, but our volunteer base is mostly females. And so to see our brothers serving on the hospitality team, to see our brothers serving, our, our brothers are in the kids' rooms right now teaching our kids. <laughs> Amen. It's good to see that. Man, our fellas are up in the media booth and they're, they're serving up there. We could not do that with the worship team. You just couldn't do that with all. That just wouldn't have worked out well today. So we had to leave one thing functioning regular, and that is the one thing that we said we would, would not touch. And so I, didn't, I sent an email to all the ministry leaders except for Tashina and Chris. So Y'all got to stay the same today. Amen. But I'm thankful for the brothers that are serving. And speaking of volunteers, uh, we quickly announced it, but I really do want to endorse it one more time. And that is our volunteer workshop next week. If you are a volunteer, please come out next Saturday as we will be engaging in what it means, how to share the gospel and evangelism, what spiritual gifts look like, uh, how we can be unified as a body and as a volunteer team. And maybe you're not serving on any capacity of our church, but we would still invite you out. It is open for everybody, and we will have breakfast. And I don't mean bagels and juice. I mean some bacon and eggs. You ought to look at somebody and say bacon and eggs. That's what we're going to have on Saturday. So listen, we're serving breakfast at 930 on the dot. If anybody knows me, you know that I am a stickler when it comes to time. So at 930 on the dot, we will be serving breakfast for half an hour and then at 10 o'clock, um, somewhere between 10 and 10.15, we will start our workshop. And that'll run up until about 1 o'clock to get you guys out of here so you can enjoy the rest of the day. I promise you it is going to be an impactful, impactful time. So we ask that you guys would come out to that. Listen, why don't you guys go ahead and grab your Bibles. I want to invite you to John chapter 2. 
We are taking a break, a small break. We've been going through the book of First Peter, and today we're taking a break from First Peter to look at what the Word of God has to say, a little bit about mothers, but most importantly about Jesus. Um, congratulations to all of our co- college graduates. Did anybody graduate this weekend? Anybody? There's a couple that graduated. Althea graduated this weekend. Let's thank God for Althea. Amen. She graduated from Columbia University with her PhD in science education. Amen. Get those degrees. I love it. I love it. All right, let's get into the word of God. Uh, John chapter 2, we'll be in verses 1 through 11. My uncle is here as well. Uncle Dwayne, good to see you. Thank you for coming. All right, pick me up in verse number 1. Verse number 1 says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, let me say that again, the mother of Jesus said to him, talking about Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, please underline these next five words. Do whatever he tells you. Verse six. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites for purification each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them, please underline this as well, to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted it, the water, how it had become wine, they did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk it freely, when the poor, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Our last verse, verse 11. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana, Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let us look to the Lord today. Father, I just want to lift up our mothers to you now. Thank God for our mothers in the special place that they hold within our hearts. Thank you. We pray that you would bless them today. Help us to be uh, good children, good, obedient children, uh, so that we can serve them well, not just today. We celebrate them today, but uh, every single day. Father, we pray that you would bless our time in your word today. We pray for gospel clarity. We pray pray for power. We pray for your Holy Spirit to hover in this room as you hovered upon the water in Genesis chapter one. Would you move upon the hearts of your people? Someone in this room does not know you. Thank you, Lord, for having them come and be amongst us today. And I just pray, Lord, that you would change their hearts today to see that Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing ever in life. But also, I thank you for the believer. Pray for that person today. Would the word of God encourage us, but also challenge us today as we focus today on Jesus Christ. It is in his name and his name alone that we come before you. Amen. I want to preach today from the topic entitled, Godly Mothers Focus on Jesus. Godly Mothers Focus on Jesus. A recent TV survey on Good Morning America asked viewers to list their top three uh, TV mothers over the last few decades. The top three TV mothers. You wouldn't be surprised to find out that the gold medal went to Claire Huxtable (laughs) 
Amen. We should give it up for her. Come on, Claire Huxtable. Claire Huxtable of The Cosby Show came in, number one. Number two was Marion Cunningham from Happy Days. And surprisingly, number three was Marge Simpson from The Simpsons Show. <laughs> Kid you not. I'm so glad that we don't have to look to the television to see good moms. We can look around this room and see good moms, but thank God that we can look to the scriptures to see godly mothers. And today, that is what we get to see as we look at the mother of Jesus. We get to see the characteristics of a godly mother. We get to gain insight today from a mother, hear this, that raised a perfect son. She is the only mother that ever raised a perfect son, and he was not perfect because of her wise instruction or her strong counsel. He was perfect based on the fact that he was 100% God. Not 100, 100% God. <laughs> And so that's why he was perfect. She's the only mother that ever walked this earth that says, hey, I raised a perfect son. My, my mother can say that too, but that, that's for another sermon. Jesus Christ is the only person that is perfect. And that means Mary is the only person that can say, I raised a perfect son. But the aim of this sermon today really is tied to the title of the sermon, Godly Mothers Focus on Jesus. Why do I say that? Because Yes, it's Mother's Day, and it's an important day that we celebrate our moms, our spiritual moms. This is a very important day, but I would rather us not put the focus on mothers, and I'd rather put mother's focus on Jesus. That's what we get in our text today. Text is not about Mary. Mary has a small part to play in this, and some bad doctrines will lift up Mary in a way that she shouldn't be lifted up in this text. The focus of this text is on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that should be the theme of mama's attitude in this room. The focus should be on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let us consider our text today. This is a very famous passage. Many of you have heard it before. I'd like to see what the Lord can say out of it today. Let me lift up verse number one. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Let me lift up again this event. On the third day, there was a wedding. Weddings during the ancient times were, were huge parties. They were like the party of parties. They were huge celebrations that typically took place. It wasn't how we do it. You know, we'll do a wedding in about an hour, two hours. They did weddings spread out over three days, sometimes up into a week. So this was a huge celebration that they were at several days. They would have a major party every single day of this wedding. But verse number one does something interesting. It doesn't just introduce us to the fact that they're at a wedding. It also introduces us to the guest list of the wedding. Look who is at this wedding. Verse number one tells us on the third day there was a wedding in Cana and the mother of Jesus was there. I'm not surprised that Mary was there. Why? Because Cana in Galilee was actually only 8.5 miles away from where she lived in Nazareth. And so think about that right down the road. This is somebody that she probably many commentators said she probably would have known the bride and groom. And some commentators would have suggested that they went so far as to say she might be even family members or extended family members to the bride and groom based on the fact that in verse number five, she's going to tell the servants what to do. No one shows up at a wedding and just starts telling people what to do unless you have a good relationship with them or your family with them. Mary in verse number five is going to say, yo, do whatever he tells you to do. 
The reason she's able to do that is because she probably knew the bride and groom. And so Mary is invited. Mary's at the wedding. But Mary's not the only one at the wedding. Let's consider, continue to see who the guest list is. Verse number two, Jesus was also invited to the wedding. Please note that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one that created all things, decided to go to this wedding. Jesus being at the wedding really affirms to us how he sees and how important marriage is to Jesus. Jesus wouldn't have showed up at this wedding if he did not care. But he is serious about a public covenant. Weddings matter to Jesus. Covenants matter to Jesus, which is why in this room, we don't push in this church. We don't push cohabitation. We don't tell people, listen, you can go ahead and live together and you don't have to get married. Just go ahead and act like you're married. We don't do that. We say, no, go ahead and put a ring on it. Why? Because Jesus is at the wedding. He doesn't show up at the wedding as something that he just doesn't care about. No, he showed up because he absolutely cares. Not only is he at the wedding, but how significant is this? Jesus decided to do his first miracle at a wedding. Shows us the importance of weddings. Any of the young men in this room can tell you that one of the things I do, especially if they're dating one of the young ladies, either in this church or out of this church, I'm always pressing guys. I don't you, y'all can say what y'all want. Y'all pressured me. No, listen, I'm going to pressure you because weddings and marriage and covenant is absolutely important. Dating forever, that's against scripture. Jesus is at the wedding. He is showing us how important it is. And marriage really is, it, it's, it's a covenant that is ordained by God himself. Not to mention that God officiated the first wedding. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. The reason I'm pushing this this morning is because culture dishonors marriage. Culture doesn't push for marriage. But the church, we can't, we can't sit like the culture. We have to say, no, marriage is absolutely important, and we have to push it. Why? Because Jesus Christ is at the wedding. Adrian Rogers said it well. He said, Jesus Christ wants to be with you on Monday mornings at the office just as much as he wants to be with you at Sunday morning at church. What you'll notice with Jesus is that, yes, Jesus is at a wedding in John chapter 2. But if you fast forward to John chapter 11, Jesus also shows up at a funeral, the funeral of Lazarus. What am I trying to say? I simply lift that to say, listen to me. Jesus Christ wants to invade every single occasion that you have. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's a happy occasion. It doesn't matter if it's a sad one. Whatever the event is, Jesus wants to be invited. Our problem is we want to invite him to church, but we don't want to invite him on Friday nights when we're turning up. But we want to invite him to church and say, listen, I did my Jesus thing today. But Jesus Christ wants to be invited, not just to the happy parts of your life, but Jesus wants to be invited in everything we do. So Jesus is at the wedding. But in kingly fashion, Jesus isn't at the wedding alone. He's rolling. He's not rolling solo here. He has his boys with him. Let me get back into the text. Verse number two says, Jesus was also invited to the wedding. Note the next three words, with his disciples. Now, before you think that Jesus just decided to show up with 12 hungry men, up until this point, only five disciples have been called. All 12 of them haven't been called at this point. 
Andrew has been called. Peter has been called. Philip has been called. John has been called. And interestingly enough, Nathaniel has been called. Why am I saying that's interesting? Because this will show you how small of a town this is. Nathaniel is actually from Cana in, in Galilee, which means he would have known the newlyweds. How do I know that? Because population during this time was no more than 300 people. And so Nathaniel is at this wedding. So Jesus doesn't show up with 12 of his boys and they just eating all the food and drinking all the wine. They didn't run out of wine because Jesus brought 12 disciples that was thirsty. No, Jesus brought five disciples and one of them would have known, probably would have known. I don't want to add to the text, but probably would have known this, uh, this marriage, this wedding couple. Let's keep going. Verse number two says, Jesus was also invited to the wedding, wedding with his disciples. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. Now that we've seen the guest list, now we, got to see, now we get to see the problem that is happening, the tension that is happening at this wedding. They have ran out of wine. Now, before you sit there and say, listen, that is not a big deal. You ran out of wine, go across the street to the bodega and grab, grab another bottle, bring it on in, we'll be good. Listen, understand something about what's happening here. You can't get as much wine as they needed. Please note that the text says that there were six jars, 20 to 30 gallons of water was in those jars. Not to mention, if you add up all of that, that's 120 gallons, conservative, 120. But on the, on the greater side, 180 gallons of water that is adding up. And so for Jesus to get more wine into those pots would have been, first of all, they would have taken all day to do that. But Jesus does it in an instant. Now, what happens with marriage? Why else is this important that the wine has run out? So during ancient times, marriages, uh, they, they would do something called a betrothal or an engagement, if you will. But it was a little bit more legally binding than our engagements. Our engagements, you can just break off. You literally had to go through a divorce process in order to break off the engagement during ancient times. And so during this time, what they would have done was they would have a husband or, or a man would have proposed to this woman and then he had one year to prepare for life. He would have built a house. He would have prepared provision for the family. And part of the provision he would have prepared was the wedding. And he would have made sure things were taken care of at the wedding. The fact that wine has ran out shows us the groom's inability to take care of this, this woman. And so this is a huge problem. We read it in the text and we just skim over it. Or we heard the story and we just keep running through it. But the grooms, this, this is a social embarrassment, not just for the groom, but this would have been longstanding for this family. Everybody would have known them and him as the guy who doesn't know how to provide for his woman. This is every mother in here, every father in here's worst nightmare that your daughter marries the dude that just won't provide. Or even worse, that your son is the dude that marries somebody that won't provide. That's what this dude is. So Jesus really, not only does he perform a crazy miracle, but he keeps the social embarrassment off of this family. This is very important for us to note. Notice who notices the problem. It's Mother's Day, right? Who notices the problem at the wedding? <laughs> Verse number three says, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, talking about Jesus, 
They have no wine. This is one of the first characteristics of a godly mother. A godly mother always notices the problem. Always notices the problem. Mama Mary noticed that the wine has ran out. When I was younger, you know, we didn't have cell phones like you young folks got it today. We didn't have cell phones back then when I was really, really young. And um, we, you know, you'd have to take a phone call from wherever that the phone was located in the house. And so there was one time a young lady called the house for me and my mother picks up the phone and the young lady asked for me. So my mother gave me the phone and I got on the phone and tried to, you know, talk smooth to this young lady. And I kept the conversation going for about an hour. And then I got off the phone with her. And then another young lady, a different young lady calls the house. My mother picks up the phone again. She says, hello, who's this? And the young lady says a different name. My mother says, he'll have to call you back. (laughs) She hangs up the phone and she begins to lecture me on something that stays with me today. She began to lecture me on what it looks like to be faithful to one woman. And to this day, to this day, I am faithful to my wife because of that conversation. My mother noticed a problem in me during my teenage years that if she did not address, would have carried through the rest of my life. Mothers know how to pick up a problem. So Mary says, listen, I notice a problem here. The wine has run out. But godly mothers don't just notice the problem. Godly mothers also know where to take the solution. Notice who Mary goes to. In the midst of this problem, Mary does not go to the disciples. She doesn't say, Nathaniel, I know this is your hometown. Where's the spots? Let's get some wine. (laughs) Mary doesn't go to the servants. Mary doesn't go to to the master of the feast. Mary doesn't even go to the bride and groom. See, if I'm Mary, I'm going straight to the groom like, yo, you're a deadbeat, man. Like, you're wrong for this. We're supposed to be turning up and you sitting here playing games. Mary doesn't go to the bride, nor does Mary go to the groom. Mary knows when she has a problem to go directly to Jesus. Hear me, mothers in this room. When I say godly mothers focus on Jesus, what I mean by that is godly mothers also know how to point out problems. Come on and have a seat, Tasha, because Tasha won't work and work and work. The fellas are working today, Tasha. (laughs) Told you I was going to get you today. (laughs) Amen. Let's thank God for Tasha. If y'all see her running around, y'all should just pull a coattail and tell her to sit on down. Godly mothers notice the problem, but they say, listen, I'm going to take this problem to the only place that this problem can be solved. And that is straight to Jesus Christ. Hear me, mothers in this room. We know that you're not perfect. We know that you don't have it all together. I say if you don't, if you're visiting here, if you're here with your kids, I say to your kids every single week that we in this room are sinful people, and that includes mamas. So what am I saying? Whatever your dysfunction is, whatever your shortcoming is, you should take your problem straight to Jesus Christ. Not only your problem, but if you have a child that you've been praying for, a child that is running the streets, a child that is disobedient, listen, taking him to Jesus will go further than having a lecture with him. Taking him to Jesus will go further than you checking his text messages. Taking him to Jesus will go further than you social media stalking him. Take your problem straight to Jesus. That is what Mary does. Mary says, I see a problem, but I also know where to 
go for the solution. She goes straight to Jesus. Now, Jesus' response here, for lack of a better or a deeper word, is hilarious. Look at Jesus' response in verse number four. It says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? First of all, if you were ever doubting in this room, if you doubt that Jesus is 100% God, look no further than the fact that he just called his mama woman. I tried to, you know, I want to be like more like Jesus. This week I tried to, I said, I'm going to be like Jesus this week. I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to be like, mom. No, I'm going to say, hold up, woman. What you doing? But then I, you know, I came to myself and I just shot her a text message and said, hey, mom, how's it going? How you doing? You feeling okay? See, I can't be that much like Jesus. Only Jesus could do this. Jesus just called his mama woman, but Jesus calling her woman, it's almost like a, a, a social hospitality or warmth to it. In ancient times, when he would have called his mother woman, he wasn't being disrespectful at all. He wasn't, being, well, uh, he wasn't being cold in any way. This is almost like us saying ma'am. But what you'll notice is Jesus isn't being, he, he's not being harsh or he's not being rude, but he's also not being intimate. Jesus is not being intimate in our text. And this is important. By calling her woman, what he is doing is he is separating his earthly relationship with his mother with his heavenly assignment. Jesus is disconnecting himself right now from his mother-son relationship so that he can follow the will of God. He is no longer bound to obedience by his earthly mother here. He is trying to obey his father. And by the way, that is a, that's another characteristic of a good godly mother. A good godly mother will see her baby following the Lord, and even if it's against her own will, she'll let him go. Jesus here says, woman, he says, what does that have to do with me? He is disconnecting himself from his mother. He does this over and over again in scripture. I'd love to read one more to you, actually two to you. He says in Mark chapter three, if you're taking notes, check this out. Mark chapter three, verse 31 to 35. He says, scripture says, and his mothers and his brothers came standing outside to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Look at Jesus response. Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? He says, looking around at these, these are my mothers. These are my brothers. And he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother. He is my sister. Now, she is my sister and she is my mother. Jesus often separated himself from Mary in order to be intact in with the will of God. Often did it. Remember when he was 12 years old and he was... Jesus was at the temple steps and his mother was looking for him. She was searching all over, couldn't find Jesus. Finally, she finds Jesus and he's sitting on the steps and he's sitting with the, with the officials and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's talking to them in some deep language that we don't know. The text doesn't give us, but he's talking to them and convincing them. And Mary comes up and she says, we were looking all over for you. What does Jesus say? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? He was separating himself. So he, he gave us a preview of it at 12 years old. And now that he's 30 years old, he is walking in obedience to the father's will, even if it goes against his mother. This is so important for us to pick up. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church, I don't know if you guys, some of you have come out of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church will say they lean on this scripture. 
And what they say is, if we want to go to God, we have to go to Mary. Despite the fact that Jesus just rebuked her. He didn't welcome her comments. He said, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not come. Jesus rebukes her. The Catholic Church will say, listen, go to Mary. But we that are believers, we don't need another mediator. We have Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king, the one who mediates on our behalf. And so Mary, yes, she's an important figure, but I wouldn't put too much weight on Mary. There was another place in Scripture in John chapter 11 where... Someone yells out, blessed is the breast that fed you, that nursed you, and the womb that bore you. And Jesus follows back up with that in verse 28 of Luke chapter 11. says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus often says, listen, I know who my mother is, but my mother was just, she was just the conduit to bring me into this world. In fact, the womb that I was in, I created. This is the Jesus that we serve. And so Jesus is separating himself here by saying, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, the request that Mary makes actually does get performed by Jesus, but it doesn't get performed because Mary was such a good negotiator. It doesn't get performed because Mary was so persuasive. Mary's request gets answered purely based on the fact that it happened to line up with the will of God. It was on God's divine timeline. So this is the time. Let's keep going in the text. Verse number four. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not come. Verse number five. And his, and, uh, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. This is so important. What you're seeing here is Mary is pushing those around her to be obedient to Jesus. There's another godly characteristic of a mother. Godly characteristics of a mother pushes their baby to do the will of God and to be obedient to God no matter what. I don't know how, how you define wisdom in here, but we define wisdom based on the scriptures. We don't define wisdom as information. We define wisdom as you doing something with that information. Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Notice Mary doesn't try to, she knows, she's the one that found the problem. She's not the one that goes and tries to fix the problem. She takes it to Jesus and then she drums up some support. Those servants around here, whatever this man tells you to do, that is what you need to do. And, and I'm convinced that many of us in here, we struggle with fully obeying Jesus. We'll obey Jesus when it makes sense to us. We'll obey Jesus when it actually lines up with what we want to do. But how many in this room will obey Jesus even when it contradicts what you want to do? Mary says, do whatever that man, Jesus Christ, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, without any type of um, a miracle, like any type of power in Mary's hands, she puts them and puts the focus, just like the title of this sermon, Godly Mothers Focus on Jesus. She puts the focus from being on her to putting it on Jesus. Let's keep going in the text. Verse number six. Verse number six says, now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. When I first read this, I was thinking it was almost like the pots. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the woman at the well. She was going back and forth into town and she was drawing water from this well to put into pots. But the pots she would have had was clay. Why? Because clay is easy to carry. 
So back and forth, she would have carried clay. Notice that the text doesn't just say pots or jars or even clay or pottery. It says stone jars. Why is that important? Because you're not carrying stone jars, 30, uh, 20 to 30 gallons of water anywhere. So these pots weren't for drinking. Yeah, they're going to drink out of them, but the pots in which are mentioned in our text, the text tells us in verse number six that they were for the Jewish rites of purification. Here's what I know about Jews. The Jews would have purified everything. I went to Israel a few months ago, and I've told you guys I, had a, I got to have dinner with a, a Jewish rabbi, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and we, I, we got to have a Shabbat meal with him. And so when I, when I sat down to have this meal, I've never had this type of a meal before. I sat down to have this meal, and before we eat, he says to me, can you go through a purification process? So I'm like, all right, I'm taking off my clothes. You want me to get a shower? He said, no, no, no. I'm going to take you to one of the sinks. First of all, the houses in Jerusalem are so dope. They don't have one sink in the, in, the, in, the, in the kitchen. They have sinks throughout the house for this purification process. So he takes me to one of the sinks, and he gives me a copper kettle, and he fills it up with water. And he asks me to pour the water onto my hands. I do it one time, and I'm drying my hands with the towel. He's like, no, 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 do it again. So I pour it again, and he says, no, 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 one more time, three times. I had to go through this process of where I was washing my hands. It was a ceremonial, ritualistic Jewish custom that they have. He took me through a purification process. The pots that are mentioned in this text are exactly for that reason. These pots are the pots that they would have cleaned their hands out of. Let me put some Bible there just in case you don't believe me. Mark chapter 7, verse, y'all got quiet, so I always got to go to the scriptures. That excites the room. Mark chapter 7, verse 3 and 4 says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as they don't. So here's what I'm about to read shows us that they don't just wash their hands. Watch what the text says. It says they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups and washing of pitchers and washing, washings of kettles, they washed everything. And so when the text says that there were six stone jars there, those stone jars weren't something they were drinking out of. They were drawing water out of them to wash their hands. This is important. Notice the fact that it's 20 to 30 gallons. I told you, uh, if you add all that up, it's 120 to 180 gallons of water. You know why that's important? That's important because that shows us that when Jesus turns this water into wine, it shows us how huge this miracle was. He, like, the, he's not turning a small bottle of Pinot Noir into wine. Like he's not, it's not a small bottle. This is 120 to 180 gallons of water. Jesus could not have made this up. He couldn't have told them, the disciples or the servants, run down and, and grab uh, enough wine to pour into this water that's already existing and we'll act like this is not a hoax. Not to mention that you have completely disinterested parties at play. The servants aren't followers of Jesus. The, 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 the master of the feast isn't a follower of Jesus, yet they're giving testimony to the miracle that Jesus just did. So they're disinterested parties. Verse number, let's keep going. Verse number seven. 
Actually, let me read six into seven. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Verse seven, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars of water. And the scripture tells us, and they filled them to the brim. This is very important that they fill these pots to the brim. Why? Because again, like I said, if this was some type of hoax, if Jesus was making this up, they could have taken wine and poured it into the existing water and said, hey, there's, there's wine now in the pots where there was water. That doesn't make sense when you look at the rest of the text, because when they tasted the, water, the, the wine, they said, this is the best wine I ever had. So it couldn't have been diluted wine. He says, fill the pots up to the brim with water. And they do. So that means there's, there's no room left for them to fill up any type of wine into it. It's not diluted wine. Not to mention, this feast has been going on for several days, which means you know how much water was already drawn out of these? We're, our text picks up midway into the festival, which means they would have been washing their hands over and over again throughout the day. So Jesus says, listen, fill it up. They fill it up to the brim. Now see what happens in verse number eight. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. This is this is so great, because what you see happening here is we don't actually know when the miracle took place. Like Jesus, if I'm Jesus, which I'm not, I'm going to be full out dramatic on this miracle. For this is my first miracle. Like, I'm sticking my finger in the water. I'm going to stir it up. You know, I'm going to do one of these numbers and let people smell the wine. You know how we take wine in the jars and we go like this and, you know, we smell the notes. I would have taken a jar and been like this, smelling it. Like, I would have been full out dramatic. Jesus isn't, don't look, just look how dope Jesus is. Jesus doesn't even touch the pots. Jesus gives two instructions for this miracle. He says, fill them up. They fill them up to the brim, and then he says, now take some out and go take it to the, to the master. This shows you how much power Jesus has. Take some of that out, give it to the master. Somewhere between verse 7 and verse 8, that water was turned into wine, and we do not know when it was. Why? Because Jesus, he knows how to floss and not be dramatic, whereas I would be full out dramatic. He says, take it to the head waiter. This is important. That the, the master of the feast, that's what he is. He's the head waiter. And if anybody should have known that there was new wine that was brought into this celebration, the head waiter, the master of the feast, would have known. Notice Jesus doesn't say take it to the groom. He doesn't say take it to the bride. He says take it to the waiter, the one who would have known all the logistics for this day. Take that wine and take it on to the head waiter. The head waiter tasted, it, and his response is, Listen, most people have the good wine up front, but you let us drink the, the bottom shelf stuff and then gave us the good wine. What we see is Jesus always upgrades everything. Verse number 10, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when they have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus knows how to take scraps and make something out of them. He knows how to do extraordinary things with just ordinary stuff. 
Notice he does a miracle and makes them drink from the place that they were cleaning their hands. This is what Jesus is able to do. And let me encourage you in here, those of you who are looking at your lack of and saying, I can't do that. I can't be obedient to Jesus and walk in that capacity because I don't have enough. Jesus used dirty pots in order to make a miracle. He can take your scraps and make something out of it. Beyonce isn't the only one that knows how to upgrade you. Jesus <laughs> knows how to upgrade you. Lamique, do you approve of that one? Yes. Jesus knows how to upgrade. And he takes the filthiness. This water was not clean. The filthiness of your life, the dysfunctions of your life, the brokenness of your life, Jesus can take it and not just make wine. Notice he said, you saved the best wine for now. He makes good stuff for us. Let's keep going. We're going to try to finish this thing up. Where am I at? Verse number, verse number 10. Verse number 10 says, and he said to him, Everyone serves a good wine for now, and when they have drunken freely, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine for now. First of all, you, you know, we do that as well. When we have people over our house, you know, we'll feed them the best we got at first. But if they keep eating and stay long enough, they're going to start to get the leftovers. <laughs> they're going to get the stuff in the fridge, the stuff that you was ready to throw out. Listen, that's what happens. Not with Jesus, though. Jesus always gives the best, even at the end. Verse number 11, now that we've seen so far, what we've seen is the wedding, we've seen the guest list, we've seen the problem at the wedding, we've seen the solution at the wedding, we've seen the power of Jesus at the wedding. Now, in verse number 11, we finally get to see the purpose of this entire story. The purpose of this entire miracle is found in verse number 11. We're going to land the plane in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus performed this miracle for two reasons, to reveal his glory and to inspire faith. Jesus Christ did not do this miracle to show Mary his mother off. Jesus didn't do this miracle simply to help the bride or the groom. Verse number 11 doesn't say Jesus did this miracle to validate his disciples. Jesus performed this miracle simply so that others that see it might believe. I want to divide this room into three different sections, if you will. And I promise you, everybody in this room will be in one of these categories. Category one is found right in verse number 11. The end part of it says, and the disciples believe. Some of you in this room have seen the power of Jesus. You've believed in the power of the gospel. You've seen the working of Jesus Christ in your own life, and you've believed in him, and you've trusted him. Thank God for you. You're a believer based on grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There's another group that's in this room, though. That's group one. Group number two is found in, Gen in, in uh, John chapter 12. If you go to John chapter 12... If you could flip there with me real quick. John chapter 12, there, the second group is found in verse 37 of John 12. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. So there's a second group that have seen the power of Jesus, has heard the gospel message of Jesus, but still has not believed in Jesus. You've seen his workings. There's a group that believes. They've seen it. They believe. They've trusted. Then there's a group of you who have seen but do not believe. 
Then there's a third group in here. This is the last group that I want to categorize you in. The third group is found in the same chapter, John chapter 12, jump to verse 42. And this group is a little, a little bit weird. I don't understand this group. Group number three, nevertheless, many, even the authorities believed in him. Watch this. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. The third group is a group that believes but chooses not to confess it because, they, because of social embarrassment for your own self. And so you believe in Jesus. You see in his work. You believe in the gospel. It all makes sense to you. But your heart hasn't changed because you haven't confessed it. Why haven't you confessed it? You haven't confessed it because these religious leaders are following their own religious cycle. There's a group of us in here that come to church. We've been to church all of our life. I was born and raised in church. I know how to lift my hands. I know how to say hallelujah. I know how to do the right things, but you still don't believe. There's a group that believes. There's a group that, and I respect the group that says I don't believe. I respect that group. You know why I respect them? Because at least they're honest to say I don't believe. The third group I don't get because you've seen the power and workings. Did you see verse 42? Verse 42 in John chapter 12 is clear. It says, Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. You know why they don't? Because verse 43 says, for they love the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. We choose not to believe because we're afraid of man. We haven't submitted ourselves to God.